This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined by Mawera Karatai, who's not in Fakatane. She's in Rotorua. What are you doing there? Kia Sam. Uh, I am in with my Bay Trust hat on at the Combined Community Trust Philanthropy Conference. That sounds fun. It is. And the most fun bit is today I start working with my my table of people from uh, which is a mix of people who've come from philanthropy and finance and research uh, all around Australasia. Um, We basically all of the community trusts have put some money in a hat and everybody here gets to decide where would we have the most impact if we invested that money? And I'm talking a significant amount of money. Where would our most, where would our best impact be? Then we bring all of those ideas through some pretty clever facilitation down to one idea. So everybody gets to pick their ideas. We start grouping things. We start talking about how could we actually make that work and we come up with a plan and we will put this significant amount of money into one really cool idea that is going to give us maximum bang for our buck or two. And some interesting discussions about impact. Absolutely, because impact is that's the most important thing. And and if you look at the way the community trusts are moving, and I guess in a sense led by us at Bay Trust, um, we we are about impact now. It's not just about filling a little gap that a community should be filling itself in terms of funding the local, you know, I don't know, toy library. Communities should be finding ways to do that themselves. We have got housing as a big problem. We've got climate change as a big problem. We have got um, mental health, big gaps in our mental health service, particularly for things like the business community where business people are the very last on their own list of people to look after after they look after all their staff. And they don't have the money, particularly around here, because we've just taken such a big hit after Fakadi and then COVID. So, you know, there, there's just there's so much space for impact. So we need to find where are we going to find the greatest impact. Yeah. Speaking of impact, I'd like to introduce our, our guest for today, <laughs> Adrian Buckingham, who is um, lecturing in the Certificate in Health and Wellbeing and running that programme at Otago Polytechnic um, and next year starts lecturing in the Bachelor of Social Science which is my absolutely most favourite programme that Otago Polytech runs because that is where the goodness happens. Welcome Adrian. it is a pleasure to have you here. Kia I'm so excited to be here with you too. Welcome Virtual. Adrian. 
Adrian, we've been asking people how their bubble life was. How was your bubble life? Um, I I had some weird bubble situations. Um, I My marriage had broken down just before the first lockdown. So I had moved out of my home of 10 years um, and I was somewhere new. Um, I w- was renting a little spot out at Brighton near the beach because I felt the need to be by the Pacific Ocean. Um, you can tell by my accent. Uh, I'm from a long way away, but the Pacific Northwest is is where I hail to and it was really important for me to be close to the water. So I was renting sort of 20 minutes out of town, but it meant I didn't know anyone. I didn't recognize any of my neighbors um, and my children. I was in a double bubble situation. So um, my children were with me half the time and they were with their father half the time. And so I was alone with my thoughts and my feelings and my decisions and my consequences and um, had a lot of really great Zoom conversations. Um, I, I had been, I'd also made a major career change and I had been contracting. So I went from having built quite a busy career, um, teaching well-being and resilience. Um, and then there was no paid work for three months. So it was a real test of my well-being and resilience. Um, and, and that was my first lockdown. My second lockdown, uh, happened just after I moved into the house that I ended up buying also by a beach. Um, but uh, Forbury, Cavisham area. Um, so, and it was a little bit more social and connected because I at least recognized the people that were walking down the street. So that's well-being squared. Yes, yes. <laughs> squared, challenged, multiplied, divided. And what have you been doing since? Mm, since lockdowns. Yeah. Oh, I have been seriously contemplating um, how I want to be investing in my community. And what I really realized, the real lack I felt in the first lockdown was a lack of community. So I decided to leave contracting and go back into education um, in Dunedin, Otapoti, which I've been teaching in the education scene for a long time. Um, So I decided to go back to the classroom. Um, I taught high school for another year and then thought, actually, I do need a a different challenge. And then I started at the Polytech uh, at the start of this year. So I've been doing that. I've been figuring out how to winter proof my very cold old house in South Dunedin. Um, And I have been contemplating whether or not I can get a dog and um, figuring out how to enjoy my own company and figuring out how to enjoy parenting my kids when I have them. That's a lot of changes, all it's while the community and the and society has been having lots of changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in some ways it was quite good. Like that first lockdown, because I I was sort of three months into sort of a separation, and um, that's about the time we know from the research that um, people who have experienced a devastating loss really start to feel alone because people stop calling and checking in and the casseroles stop coming and, and all the flowers that were gifted if someone's passed away die. And um, so we know three months is, is a really tricky time for people who are suffering bereavement. Um, but all of a sudden, everybody was in lockdown um, all over the world. And a lot of, you can tell from my accent, a lot of my support people are, are around the globe. So I suddenly got to have these wonderful catch-ups with um, people I lived with at university and taught with in the Middle East and um, 
just it was just great actually in terms of being able to connect and and take that time to reconnect with people that that I'd lost in the busyness of things. It's interesting that it has a, the pandemic and our response to it has enabled that kind of connection, which we always always were able to do, but mm-hmm. we weren't doing. No, we absolutely weren't. And we we knew how to use technology and we could share our photos on Facebook, but nobody was doing an international family quiz night. Nobody was um, having online drinks. And, um, you know, I even had like a, a cooked dinner with a friend um, on, on a Wednesday night at 730 because she knew I was a very social person. She She is not. I have to give props to this introvert who gave up an hour of her silence to keep me company while we both cooked dinner together over video and chatted. Um, and, and this is not how we were using technology before. Um, yeah, before the pandemic. So it, it was pretty cool. My brother played a game of chess with my nine-year-old virtually. Um, and it was painstaking. It was hard to watch, actually. <laughs> like, and I, I had to help make sure that the pieces ended up on the right. But, she, you know, my daughter had her board in front of her at this end of the ocean and he had his board on the other. And, yeah, it was just phenomenal. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Sylvan Esso, Die Young. Why this one? I love this song. Um, it is so much more cheerful sounding than it should be. <laughs> um, but it, for me, um, I'm a person who is a bit of a roller coaster in terms of um, hope. Um, I, I love life and I get excited about things and I want to do everything and I'm great at starting projects and then um, summer ends and autumn comes and things get dark and cold and I get dark and cold. And um, I love this song because it's about this idea that um, when you get that spark again, when you get excited about life, whether it be because of a person or whatever it is, but the, the line is, you know, I was going to I was going to check out early, but um i was going to die young but i need to stick around and watch you burn so this idea of like watching that light go um and you know on my you know on any good day it's those people that you love but on the great days you realize that that's yourself that you've got to see what your potential is going to be and and what you're going to do next I could have missed it 
So, Adrian, excited about life. What got you or got you first excited about well-being? Oh, um, well, you know, probably I've always been driven to sort of have a sense of my own well-being. Um, I grew up in a military family, so um, we didn't move as much as a lot of families, but the way my schooling sort of fell, it meant that I changed schools every two to three years. So I, I was always very much about um, finding the people I felt connected with, who I felt safe with, all of that, as, as you are as a child and an adolescent. So that was probably the first bit. Um, I became a high school teacher. Um, and that was an incredible challenge to my well-being. Um, and I actually have evidence of me teaching in the Middle East when I was in my first few years of teaching um, in the early 2000s. And I gave a workshop on how to use yoga postures to support your well-being as an educator. Um, so there, I was using that language even then. But it wasn't until ooh, about 2014, 2015, I was seeing a real change in the teenage students that I was teaching. The type of students that have problems that were coming across were really new. Um, I didn't know how to help them. I had a psychology background is probably why I knew I couldn't help them. Um, so I got really interested. I started a master's in counseling and then realized I didn't want to be a counselor. I want to be an educator. I love talking um, and teaching. Um, so I stumbled across positive psychology and the work of Dr. Lucy Hone and Dr. Denise Quinlan and the work that they were doing around resilience training across the country. And and it started there. And I did a diploma of positive psychology and well-being in 2017. And then it just snowballed, really. Yeah, it's we are so hungry for it. We are so desperate for it. And it, it's, you know, initially I started looking at these teenagers in front of me going, I need to help these guys. Um, and I say guys because I worked at a boys school. Um, but what I realized, the more I looked into it, I was like, oh, actually, I, I need to look at my well-being. Um, I need to be looking at my relationships. All the adults I know need to be looking at their well-being. We are trending in a way that is not looking after ourselves and our mental health. And uh, I mean, the great thing, I mean, there was so many challenging things, but the great thing I think about the pandemic in terms of my work is that nobody can argue anymore that well-being doesn't matter. Nobody can say that they're fine without looking after their well-being. Everybody has been pushed to the point where we have to acknowledge it. Um, people still aren't, I think. Um, the psychological fallout is really coming to the forefront now. Um, and if we want to talk about the long-term impact of the kind of conditions we've been working in, you know, burnout in education and healthcare, you know, that that's all that's all coming to the forefront now and it's really challenging our systems. Um, but but it means that this is a thing we have to talk about and and we can talk about it. There's a really good solid body of 20 to 30 years of research evidence-based around how we support well-being, how we can live more satisfying, productive lives. Are we getting better at it? <laughs> We're getting more aware of it. What we know, again, from the research is that when we first start learning about well-being, everybody's well-being takes a hit because for the first time, we take time to realize that maybe not all is rosy in the garden. Um, and... So we know that people go, oh, yeah, no, my well-being is pretty good. We start learning about what well-being is because it's actually quite a complex psychological um, 
construct um, that everybody goes, oh, actually, maybe it's not as good as I thought. But we also know that dip comes back up again. And once you can arm yourself with knowledge and skills and strategies that long term, we do get better at it. And the great thing is, is that, I mean, one of the definitions I really like, and I, I borrowed this and from Lucy Hone and, and Denise Quinlan, is this idea that our resources need to outweigh our challenges. So as long as our resources, whether they be psychological, financial, physical, all of that, as long as that outweighs whatever challenge we're facing, we have well-being. But we also know the challenges are getting bigger and louder, and we can't ignore them the way we used to. I think we were blissfully just sweeping things under the rug, whether it was uh, the environment or the impacts of colonialism or how our brains are affected by technology. And we are now shedding a light and shining an awareness on some really ugly stuff that we don't want to look at. But um, we need the resources. We need to be able to support ourselves and each other if we're going to tackle this for good outcomes. Has something changed? And I'm thinking of a change to a that the VUCA the VUCA world, the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Is it the change to that that's I don't want to say caused? Is that behind it? Or as you say, is it been there all along and we've just been pretending it wasn't? I think it's been there all along, but we actually didn't have access to it. Um, so I don't know that we weren't all pretending. Some people were pretending. Most of us really didn't know lots of it. Um, and it might be willfully ignorant, but, you know, there's more and more knowledge and there's less and less of an ability to ignore that knowledge, I think. But we're only wired to be able to process so much information with our poor little human brains. And we have way too much negative information to be processing. We have access to too much now. The brain's wired to have sort of 200, 250 really solid relationships because those that's the number of relationships of people that we can really know about and be invested in and have an impact on. When we know about thousands of people experience tragedy, the brain shuts down. We get overwhelmed because we can't actually make a huge amount of impact unless I guess you have lots of millions of dollars you can be investing somewhere. <laughs> Do you remember about, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, such a long time ago now, there was a little boy who was with his family was in a refugee boat and um, we woke up in New Zealand to images of this little boy on the beach. He had drowned. Do you remember what colour clothes that. he was wearing? Ooh. He was wearing... Red or yellow? Yeah, he was wearing a red shirt and blue shorts, I think, or it might have been the other way around. He's wearing red, yeah. red and blue. And I remember the first time I saw that image, I cried. It was mm -hmm. so sad. And then over the course of the day, I must have seen it 100 or 200 times. By the mm -hmm. end of the day, I was just going, scrolling past it. Mm -hmm. And it just seems that that is the world we're living in at the moment, mm -hmm. where we're just asked to care so much and so often that to steal ourselves, we're able to just scroll on past. Yeah, we can't. We can't. Um, and nor should we. I mean, that's the thing. We have to be really careful about how much of this information we allow ourselves to be exposed to, because 
it's important that we attend to it. It is important that we preserve a place of sensitivity and an ability to have empathy for it. And you cannot do that when you're talking about thousands. And isn't that what they say? That like one death is a tragedy, a thousand is a statistic. Yeah. Wow. That is so true and scary. We, we were um, watching the the um the the fatality rates over the pandemic and getting concerned about one person and then another one person. But now it's however many people it is a day, and I don't even know what the number is. No, but I also have to chime in here and and be a little bit critical of how those stats were presented as well. I think people became really mistrustful of the stats because there there wasn't a differentiation between died from COVID and died with COVID. And and that in itself was a reason for people to just close the door on wanting to know that actually we cannot have our bodies under that kind of stress and body count situation long term. Our bodies aren't designed at some point, it will just shut down. That is a trauma response. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dinin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi arohanui, kia koutou, ka tawaho. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique and here making things better. Thank you. Now I know that for us all the last more than three years have been very tough and I'm sure for us all we are sharing the state of recovery and recalibration, recharging our batteries after what has been a long and gruelling series of changes and adjustments, many different permutations of ways of being, doing, seeing, feeling. And for all of us, I know we really need the time and the space to reacquaint ourselves with the world and how we want to be in it. As I speak to you now, it's a beautiful summer's day. The sun is shining, the birds are singing, the plants are very happily photosynthesizing. And so of course this got me thinking all about sunshine and sunlight, how important it is to be out in the sun, in the sunlight, and be absorbing that warmth, that heat, that light. And a reminder that at all times we can find something to be grateful for. We can find such beauty in the world around us. And in many ways, this is like turning our face to the sun, turning our face to the light, turning our face to the warmth, turning our face to the heat, and feeling that gratitude and that appreciation for the world that is holding us, the world that is sustaining us, at times, of course, we can become very enmeshed with the human world and all of the machinations of different aspects of the human world. And this can be very tiring. So having that opportunity to reconnect with the living world and the nurturing qualities of the living world can be so helpful. 
it's wonderful for me to gaze out and see so many native plants looking like they're having the best time in the sun. The green leaves shining and glossy and just imagining what it must be like to be a plant and photosynthesize and be able to harness that power, that energy from outer space and turn it into food, turn it into oxygen, you know, so beautiful, a real skill. And of course, being able to use the light to grow. And this is a beautiful image for all of us at, at this time, you know, that we have had to have so much time restricted and needing to keep ourselves at home and needing to keep one another safe. And now we are re-emerging into the light and we are moving towards this bright future, shared future. And of course we can choose what direction we move in and how we move in that direction. We can choose how we grow. I know for myself that I'm wanting to make a return to my health and fitness, but I'm tempering this with understanding that it may take longer than it has previously. And so I think for all of us, if we can give that compassion and that love to one another and to ourselves at this time, to be patient, to be kind, to recognize that we're all doing our best at all times and turning our faces to the light that each other shares. And of course, being part of the show is a great pleasure and privilege for me. So a huge thank you to Sam and the whole Blowing Bubbles team for having me. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Adrian Buckingham. Adrian, on Monday, we spoke with Shakuru Munro from Tanzania. And she was talking about the difference... Um, in the in community community was a big part of our conversation with shakuru and she talked about how the kids in tanzania are just so excited to be at school they will run 10ks just to make sure that they're there and it's such a big part of community for them and here we have the opposite problem at the moment where we've got a real it's difficult to get kids to school and difficult to engage with them when they are at school and hope seems to be in short supply yeah, we, um, we're competing against a lot of complex factors there. And yes, absolutely, the pandemic is a large part of that. But we, we know we had trouble with attendance before. It has been made worse by, um, by the last three years. Um, but it, it was a problem before that as well. Um, I've taught high school in three different countries. And what I found um, in my own anecdotal noticing is the people who valued education the most, whether it be in New Zealand or in Southeast London or in Kuwait City were the people who were not born in the country that I was teaching in. Those kids that knew their parents had made a sacrifice that had brought them to better educational opportunities or um, a different country for political reasons or whatever it was, valued education in a way that the people who were born there didn't. Because I think we're a little bit spoiled. We feel entitled to it. And we also think that it should be entertaining. 
Um, and I'm not saying that this is wrong. I think education should be engaging and entertaining. But what we have is we have a system that is very much based on assessment. Um, and what we are doing to our young people all the time, whether it be through NCEA or even standardized testing in primary school, is that we are telling kids they are not good enough all the time. And why would you show up to be told you're not good enough when you can stay home, play a video game, get given like 160 gold coins for doing something fun and getting rewarded? Why would you then want to go slog away at a four-page essay just to be told it wasn't good enough? There's a lot of schools around the country. New Zealand uh, has really decided to go with um, values-based education. There's a lot of evidence about why you do that and why it's important, and I'm a big fan of it. But one of the main mistakes, and I worked at a school that made this mistake, um, is that one of the key values that a lot of schools primary, intermediate, and secondary around the country is one of the values is excellence. And they might mean personal excellence, but it doesn't matter because the language of NCEA is excellence. And what we know from NCEA, when you're marking, they do not want more than three to 5% of the population to get an excellence because it's a bell curve. So if you are marking exams at the end of the year and you are marking more, more than three to 5% is getting an excellence, they change the goalposts. So we are setting up our young people, telling them we want you to be excellent. We value excellence. You should be excellent. And then we put them through a system that ensures that 95 to 97 percent of them will fail at that goal that we've set them up for. And we wonder why we have a mental health crisis in this country. Why do we do that? Why is that the criteria? What is the point of that? When university, you pass or you fail, you know, in the higher, like once you get into your master's and your doctorate, you pass or you fail. But everything up to that is about grades of success. Why? Hmm. Why can't well, it just be pass or fail? We are obsessed with this idea of competition and being the best. And we use it in our sports and we use it in our classrooms. And if I really had to just boil it down to something that isn't academic at all, I think it comes down to ego. I think it comes down to adults trying to live out whatever ideas they had about their education, despite it being a different century. And it's just pretty unfair, really. My son is about to start high school next year. And if he if he didn't do particularly well in the testing, he won't get into a class that enables him with opportunities that other kids won't get. And That's how right. terrible is that? That that is our aspiration is for him to do well enough just because he gets to have those opportunities. Hmm. But, but you can also, get opportunities that others don't get. You can earn those opportunities by doing better on a test, but you can also buy those opportunities. Yeah, that is true. You can buy smaller class sizes. You can buy more trips. So there, there's lots of ways into this system, but it's not available to everybody. It's no. not available to people that have average intelligence. It is not available to uh, people that don't have the money, um, unless they have the average intelligence and the money. Yeah, and it's not available in, in, in small rural communities like we live here in the Eastern Bay of Plenty because you get two choices of high school, this high school or that high school. They are the same size. They have pretty mm -hmm. much the same opportunities. So it's just about where you, I guess, which one's closest to your house is the and one you go to. The other thing is, and I think there's great educators at every school in this country. I have worked at schools all around the country alongside educators, and there are phenomenal educators everywhere. 
but not every school has an alumni that raises money for that school. And that's where the inequity happens when you have better connections. I have a friend who uh, went to quite a prestigious school in Christchurch and I could watch it him dawn it dawn on him when he realized, oh, the fact that I have schoolmates from when I was 16, you know, he's in his 40s now. He's like, I've got a better quality of business connection as a result of what school I went to. And that is part of my success as a businessman now. I was like, absolutely, you were right. Whether or not we think that we're a hierarchical um, society, um, whether or not we think we have escaped the class system of, you know, Britain, it's still there. Our Māori learners in Aotearoa mm-hmm. are told all the time that they are going to be underachievers in um, in school, that they are far more likely to end up in the justice system that they are going, that they're going to die younger because um, they are not going to have, their health won't be as good, that they're more likely to experience family violence, that they're more likely to end up in broken families, all of these things, more mm-hmm. likely to be, um, have addiction issues and in the resulting mental health. So if you've spent your whole life growing up hearing those messages about all of your deficits, Mm-hmm. And the likelihood of you ending up in that in that deficit position, what are your chances of not being in those statistics? Well, and this is the really tricky thing, because how do we address the discrimination that is very real that creates these inequitable out- opportunities and inequitable outcomes for our young Māori and Pacifica learners and other immigrant learners as well. When we have a system that's catered to a very particular type of student from like one or two centuries ago, we know that the way the system has been designed is not built to nurture those educators. How do we address that deficit without drawing attention to the deficit? How do we fix this and talk about this without further perpetuating it as a sort of self-fulfilling and societal fulfilling prophecy. It's really tricky. We know that there's some protective factors. How do we get the resources to get those protective factors? Like being well in touch with your culture, like having invested adults, like having health care and education needs met. Yeah. So so we we know this. We three and to mm-hmm. our listeners, we know this because these are the conversations we have every day of our lives. But how do we take it from being this conversation and the solution? We know what the solutions are. How do we actually turn that into policy that is implemented inside the system that fixes it when the mm-hmm. system just appears to have so many protective mechanisms in place to prevent us from doing exactly that? Mm. I think for me, um, I... I am wary of policy. It's important and it's there and we have to talk about it and it is it has to be done. But what is written down and what happens are often two different things. And I think you'll find that there's lots of great policies in place. Um, there needs to be more. There needs to be better policies, but there needs to be the human element. And I think where we get our humanity is not in the systems, it's the humans in the systems. And until we start talking about the people in the systems, which is us, we're the people running the systems, we need 
to have that awakening and that understanding. And the only way you can ever get somebody else to awaken to information that is uncomfortable is with empathy and patience and compassion. And if we can teach people how to be patient and empathetic and compassionate with themselves, we know that's a transferable skill for them to be able to hold for other people as well. I look I look at the systems that need to change and I look at the people that are in there and I don't see us in there. I don't mm-hmm. see I don't see us reflected at all. I don't see the way that you think your approach, the way that Sam thinks and his approach and the way that I think we don't we are not in that system. In fact, I think that they would purposely go out of their way to prevent us from being part of the system because we represent change. I have um, I have been nicknamed an agent for change by my father. I don't think he meant it as a compliment. Um, but I, you know, I worked, I've been working in systems and institutions, educational institutions for my entire adult life. Um, and as a result, have unknowingly participated in some horrifically unfair systems. Um, and I did damage, I did not know what I was doing. But I also, as an individual, managed to build individual relationships um, or relationships with classes or hold safe spaces where you could uphold the individuality and the mana of students in order to protect that space so they can grow themselves. And that is our job as educators, I think, is to hold that space so they can find it within themselves. Because it's about empowerment the and themselves. But we do, you've got to protect them from parts of the system. And and that is, I think, our job as I teach healthcare workers, as I teach teenage boys how to write poetry, as I teach rowing or rugby or whatever, it is about holding enough space that is safe that the individual there can find out what they can do. It is safe enough for them to make mistakes. It is safe enough for them to be able to grow and access the wealth of knowledge they already have from whether it be the family of origin or their ancestors or that wider societal. But, you know, there's so many levels we could be talking about this on. But we have this old idea of education that we've got. um, We've got the experts and we've got the learners. And we know that that is not how education works. And anybody who is passionate in education knows that's not how it works. And so, I mean, obviously, we could talk about the Tukhanatana model, but what it really is about is about going, well, just because I'm the teacher doesn't mean I know everything. Just because you're the student doesn't mean you know nothing. Um, And how do we start teaching and learning in a way that is about a lot more holistic and a lot less hierarchical? I'm going to squeeze in the second of your music choices. Let's have Gracie and Rachel go. Why this one? Oh, I just really like Gracie and Rachel. Um, they are currently opening for Ani DeFranco, who was like the poet slash musician of my adolescence. Um, and they are the next generation that is opening her show at the moment. And I would love to go to any one of those concerts, but I'm, I live in the other hemisphere.
Adrian, before the break, we were talking about the challenges that we face. How do we shift that conversation at a societal level to one which is strengths-based and positive, but without sort of putting on some sort of deluded blinkers that we just ignore what, what, if, what is going wrong? Or... Yeah, it's about the types of questions we ask. If we're looking for a strengths-based focus, we need to think about where we're coming from, how do we appreciate what's happening, how, what is the good stuff 
while also avoiding that toxic positivity and going that, oh, everything's fine or she'll be right, which is it right? Um, so I think that we have a challenge set because we have a lot of societal issues. And we also have these brains that contain something called negativity bias, where we are tuned to look at threat and weakness because that is what keeps us safe. That is what you need for survival. We have to pay attention to what is a threat to us. That is a great skill to have for survival. If your ancestors or my ancestors hadn't been worried about the raising of the river next to wherever we were camping or living, then they wouldn't have passed on their genes. They worried about that and as a result, passed on their genes to us. But as a result, we are the most anxious people that have ever walked the face of the planet. And that is great for survival. It is not great for thriving. If we want to thrive, we have to override that negativity bias and we need to be able to lean into the positive emotions which make it safe to learn and grow. And any positive emotion can do that. So curiosity, gratitude is the big buzzword at the moment, um, appreciation, compassion. And none of these things are about being happy all the time. It's about being happy enough to keep going. And that's what we need to foster in ourselves and in our young people if we're going to keep going. So the theme of this show started out being positive but not deluded. <laughs> and then we'd need to look at who it was, Mawera. Somebody about a year ago convinced us that we should change that to a dash of deluded, so we did. I like that. Do you think that we need to have that small amount of imagination and that that, that's, that side of us that, that isn't able to make things real but it's just out there anchoring yes. perhaps that, 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 that crazy side? Yeah, that, that maybe things will be okay. That bit, that hope bit, yeah, we need that. Um, and how do we have that? And how do we have that when things are really challenging? And this is one of the great struggles of my own life is how do we look forward to things or think positively when there doesn't appear to be anything to look forward to or think positively about? Um, and for me, when I need that sense of hope individually, I do two things. One, I look at how far we've come, you know, how much even our country and our society has changed about what we can talk about publicly in the last 15 years has changed immensely. We have come so far, even just this century. And that gives me a little bit of hope. The other thing for me is always about education. It is always about who is sitting in front of me and what they think of that I haven't thought of yet. It is about the new artists, the new writers, the new musicians, the new creation that I haven't gotten to see yet or I've just been introduced for the first time. And that's the stuff I get excited about. And I go, oh, wow, if this book that has just come out has become my favorite book, what else might still be in the making somewhere? And that's that that helps hook me into the future. Um, when that's not always easy. I have some questions to end the show and not very much time, so we're going to have to wriggle. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? I've started to be able to enjoy my new life. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What's your superpower? What's got you into the oh, mansion? I love being part of a team. This is exciting. Um, well, 
so I, I have seasonal superpowers. So this time of year, spring, summer, um, zest is clearly, zest and enthusiasm is my superpower this time of year. Um, and I am a great project starter. Um, the one thing I can do all year um, is uh, I genuinely care. I genuinely care whether or not someone is enjoying their life and whether or not someone is suffering. And and when I say that, sometimes the only person I care about is whether or not I'm enjoying my life, but it's still caring about that. And I think probably depending on how many spoons you have or how full the cup is, depends on how many people you can care about at any at any given moment. But that's probably it. I like do you people. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Activist sounds very active. Um, I very opinionated. <laughs> yeah, I think probably, probably is in the agent for change stuff, I guess. Not politically, though. Even if it was meant as a put down or as, as a, as a criticism. Not a compliment. I said <laughs> as a put down, just not a compliment. <laughs> so what makes, what motivates you? What gets you out of bed? Oh, at the moment, just sunshine. Um, and I, you know, to quote Frozen, the sky's awake, so I'm awake. Um, and just being able to get out and enjoy good weather and, and be outside and talk to people and be part of my community. What's the biggest challenge or perhaps opportunity that you're looking forward to in the next year or so? Biggest challenge? Ugh. Yeah, probably just mindset for next winter um, and just stealing myself um both emotionally but also financially for winter um and the increase in power bills and the challenges to my own mood and uh just yeah surviving another winter yeah <laughs> and lastly do you have any advice for our listeners always add more salt <laughs> thank you makes for that makes everything taste better Nowhere. Those are words to live by. Um, Adrian, I nickname you an agent for change, and I mean it as the greatest possible compliment, the greatest possible compliment, because without people like you who are willing to champion change, then there can't be change, and change is what we need for the well-being of all of us. So don't think about that in any negative way at all. That is who you are. It is what you do. And we're bloody lucky, actually, to have that. So thank you for the work that you do for an incredibly, incredibly thoughtful corridor today on the show. Kia ora. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you both. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, for a fifth, the we have no. Mommy, no worry, I'm now failure. Brammy 17, go change on. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. I owe them a The more I'm laugh when they talk so. Cause them nana sense of them bandons. Yeah, wait there. I'ma no worry about your gun. I'ma no worry about your smile. Bandana. But I'm still feel like I am. I'm in need of for happy. I don't need nobody. Nobody. When I trust people, people do feel Now nah, look how easy that change Jump then jump for man where I range When I play them games, hungry stay far Eh, that my default Can't give you my love, cause I've been scared You wanna know more
evil pissed up Should I see some money? No, I six pass Anyway, oh, I need a transplant Come on, I need for my heart No one to blame on my fault You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, which is brought to you by T. Pooplinger. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook. We had a contribution today from Tahu Mackenzie. This is our 450th show, so here is 450, Know Where You Do. I'm Samuel Mann, I'm in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani, and coming to us from Otago Polytechnic to Pukanga, we've been joined by Adrian Buckingham. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. Matiwa. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.